This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the webbox podcast i'm matt chorley coming up on today's episode would you want to be an mp uh, lots of big names are announcing that they're standing down at the next election. I've been in the Commons for years and years and years. So we've got some exclusive polling, which reveals one in five people think they could be an MP. 13% of people think they could be Prime Minister. Uh, we'll find out what it's really like sitting on the Commons green benches. That's in our big thing. First, as ever, we kick off with our Commons panel on a Thursday. It is Night at the Marriott. It's India Night and James Marriott. Right, it's that time of the morning we'll speak to two of our favourite columnists. And on a Thursday, it is Night at the Marriott. It is India Night. Morning, India. Morning, Matt. And here in the studio with me, it's James Marriott. Morning, James. Good morning. Would any of you like to be an MP? No, not no. remotely. <laughs> <laughs> Seems really stressful. Yeah. No, no, I can't believe it's one in five. That's absolutely extraordinary. I also can't believe that nobody is um, saying that they would... Uh, that they would make draconian punishments for people who didn't pick up dog poo. But, oh, the, um, the, the picking up dog poo may well be lurking somewhere in the hundreds and hundreds of messages be. we've had. It must be. But, yeah, um, there seem to be a lot on people, people walking slowly on pavements. Seems to be yeah, and also difficult. short people with umbrellas. that Short people with umbrellas is a big thing. What would you change? What law would you change, James? Oh, my God. I mean, as a short person, often oh, carrying sorry. an umbrella... Um, I, I'm very pro short people with umbrellas, so I would I would be voting against that uh, immediately. See, everything is divisive. Everything is divisive. Uh, right, let's, uh, let's let's move on and talk about something slightly less divisive: the future of the monarchy. This is looking a bit, a bit looking, looking a, a bit iffy, isn't it? Well, it just it, you know, it, it, talk about Annas Horribilis and all of that. Uh, the Queen, uh, she's you know just when she's finally sorted out Prince Andrew. Uh, and it, he's made that particular legal issue go away by, uh, we've all done it, giving £12 million to someone you've definitely never met. Uh, and then along comes Prince Charles being investigated for cash for honours. It's not a great time for her to be planning a jubilee, is it, uh, India? No, no, it's not. I think there's a, I mean, monarchy aside, I, I do think there's a sort of funny, precarious feeling at the moment. Everybody loves and reveres the Queen. But when what happens when she steps down is, is, I don't know, it all feels quite precarious. But then everything feels quite precarious. I was just thinking this morning, you know, everything is broken. Everything feels broken. I was talking to a friend at the weekend who's a woman in her 50s, and she was saying she has 
but she's never had grave levels of permanent anxiety about the state of the world before. And currently she does, you know, from the cost of living to the monarchy to politics is broken. The police, the Met is completely broken. The weather is broken. <laughs> Everything is broken. It's a, it's, you know, it's a, I, I actually had that thought. Um, why was I thinking about that? At some point when I was in Scotland, I was all walking around thinking, everything's getting rubbish. Mm. James, discuss. Yeah, well, as um as a as a confirmed pessimist, uh, I'm very much on the everything is. Oh, you're back rubbish. on that thing now. You did one. <laughs> I did one. Of well, I did. I did a cheery one. I did a cheery one, and I think now it's time for me to return to my to yeah. my natural pessimism. Although I do, I do, I do think there's like I don't know. I do think um, everybody has always thought things are getting worse through the entirety of history. So I always feel a little. Although I, my natural inclination is pessimism, I always I always try and remember that people have always thought things are getting terrible, and things could definitely be a lot worse. Um, I feel like, you know, the weather. I suppose, but climate change. I mean, the weather actually is part of a kind of terrible trend for everything getting worse, isn't it? I was trying to think of a positive thing to say, but now I can't. Now I can't think of anything. Um. <laughs> everything is broken. Do you? Th- I mean, do we always think that? I was. I think I was, I was sort of talking to someone over the weekend. I was sort of thinking there was a time. I remember maybe when I was sort of leaving school or something and thinking. Everything's a bit rubbish, you know. But I think they were introducing tuition fees and all that. And I was sort of thinking, why, mm. why is everything a bit rubbish for my lot? But does, does everyone always think that the people just ahead of them had a slightly better time of it? I don't think so. I mean, I think, yes, humanly, yes. You know, people are always looking at other people and envying them. But I think it's beyond that. I think there's a kind of general... Malaise is too weak a word for it. There's a general feeling that we're kind of bogged in a mire and that there doesn't seem to be any obvious way of getting out. I don't know. But you know, yeah. To, to me, it's it's um, to me who is very old. It's not a feeling I'm particularly familiar with. Actually, there's always you know there's always something bad going on somewhere, and it's fine. And you, but you, but but as you're walking around the club doing your weekly shop, it doesn't kind of the weight of it doesn't oppress you generally. And I feel at the moment that there are just so many things. There are really big things. You know, the police and the monarchy being two of them. That. That you're just saying, well, what's going to happen? It's all really creaking really badly in the gale force winds, and something is going to have to come down at some point. I don't know. Like sounding like the voice of doom. Well, it's all right. You're, you're making uh, James seem slightly cheery by comparison. James, <laughs> what do you think, particularly on the on the monarchy um, and the future of the monarchy? Because it does sort of feel like everyone, as India was saying, everyone loves the Queen. When you get down to the next lot. Mm. Yeah, it's bit. not so exciting, is it? Uh, Charles, Andrew, I mean, even Anne, Anne's like fine, but you know, Anne, Edward. Yeah, I, I mean, I get, I get to lose track of some of these people when you get down to your Edwards and stuff like that. It's kind of interesting because I suppose you know Prince Charles's big plan for the monarchy was that he was going to streamline it. You know, the, this kind of this sort of branching network of random members of the royal family who are people's cousins who all had you know big houses and royal titles who just always seemed to be at a loose end and getting themselves into trouble all going to be chopped away um and it was going to be streamlined to the kind of main responsible members uh but prince charles has now proved that even though he is supposedly one of those main responsible <laughs> members uh yeah, he could you be know, streamlined out of it yeah feels like maybe maybe by his own by his own strategy he should be he should be streamlined um because you know i guess prince andrew is the kind of archetypal at a loose end kind of pointless royal who's you know um you know huge social st- well you know huge kind of status in the monarchy um pomposity and nothing to do was like a terrible combination for him and he just went and caused lots of trouble uh but even prince you know even prince charles is in trouble now um yeah maybe maybe streamlining for prince charles and the trouble is so some people were saying well we should just skip a generation and go on to you know prince william everyone likes william and kate but the, the trouble with that is it india is it you that the, 
You just totally undermine. You either buy into the idea. Yeah, exactly. You either do it or you don't do it. You can't sort of pick and choose. Um, but I think streamlining, like really serious, hardcore streamlining is essential um, if the monarchy is to survive. And I think, I don't know, I just feel that the goodwill that people feel towards the Queen does not necessarily automatically pass on to anybody else. They're very nice, William and Kate. They seem charming young people. But, you know, let them live in Norfolk and have a nice time with their ponies. I mean, I don't know. I don't know that there's any great appetite for, I don't know. Actually, maybe there is. Maybe there's appetite for a bit of pageantry and a bit of resetting. But, you know, as as we're just saying, it's kind of difficult when Prince Charles himself is embroiled in a thing that, you know, there should really be no embroilments at all. And do we want to go full republic? Do we want, do we want a president? It's all just so difficult, isn't it? I mean, I think, you know, you just kind of want everything to kind of rumble along broadly unchanged as before, which is what the Queen has been very useful for doing because she has just lived basically forever and no one's ever really had to confront it and everyone thinks she's doing a marvellous job. Um, but yeah, it's going to be very weird to see how the national mood changes when, you know, Charles becomes king with this kind of history of, um, well, you know, now this kind of this kind of scandal and, you know, all the sort of Princess Diana stuff that... Um, you know, he's been through he's been through a lot and he's a person with baggage in the way that the Queen never was. I think the whole thing I think India's right that it kind of feels more fragile now because, you know, back um, you know, when he was um divorcing Princess Diana and all the sort of squidgy gate stuff, the idea that, you know, the the monarchy didn't feel fragile because the Queen, we all assumed, had decades and decades and decades to live. But now I guess everyone's kind of aware that this tipping point is approaching and the Queen won't be here forever. And all these kind of crises that seem to, you know, royal through the royal family every, every so often, but had never really touched anything that important because the queen was there suddenly she's going to be gone all this stuff will just be the royal family and there'll be no kind of layer of respectable respectable queen over the top of the whole thing and that's why these scandals even maybe they feel more minor than stuff that's gone in the past feel more relevant to the future maybe well we'll see how it um, pans out the one will be left by the time uh, <laughs> we move on to this question um, and also sorry also why is prince andrew so bad at reading the room i mean he's like a person <laughs> who lives on another planet. He's insisting, according to today's Times, on attending the memorial service for his father. Like, no, stay at home, watch it on telly. Go and say a prayer in the chapel at Windsor, quietly by yourself. You know, this sort of urge to, I don't know, it's really strange. It makes me wonder if he's quite all right in the head. Well, I mean, anybody who sat through that Newsnight interview would, would, would have to wonder. Uh, given mm. that A, he thought it was a good idea, then B, didn't seem to have prepared any answer. Any answer. And then, was and then yeah, and then remember, yeah, told the Queen it had gone very well. Doesn't seem like a very brainy man, I think, is something we can probably agree on. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, that's, that's, that's a sort of family trait. Yes. I think, uh, I think it's gone particularly wrong with him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, let's move on from. Uh, let's move. Well, in fact, oh, look at this. I'm about to want a, a, a professional radio segue. Speaking of uh, schools and learning and education, let's move on and talk about teachers uh, being told to avoid using material from campaigning organisations such as Black Lives Matter and Stonewall that may have partisan political views. Apparently. Uh, people in government are very unhappy at teachers posing questions like Winston Churchill, hero or war criminal. What do you think of that, James? I, th I think it's fascinating. I think it's so complicated because obviously, you know, we want our teachers to maintain a level, a level of political impartiality. No one wants to send their kid to school and come back and realise it's been radicalised one way or the other. The other thing is everything is political. 
you know, every interpretation of anything is political. And especially now, I think it's especially now that, you know, once upon a time, the idea that Churchill was a war hero would have been basically completely uncontested and uncontroversial. It does... That's, or that he was only a war hero would have been uncontroversial. That's kind of no longer the case. And saying anything either way about a lot of these issues is inevitably political because we're in the situation of, I don't know, culture war, whatever you want to call it, where no one can quite agree on anything. And I don't know what the non-political stance on all of this stuff is. I think it's very, you would take immense care to be totally apolitical for any teacher in this environment. Well, what do you think? Because it's one of those things where you don't want you know, uh, teachers imposing their partisan views on children. Although, I think that's already banned. I think that's already sort yeah, of written into yeah. it. And instead, this feels a bit like, I mean, I call me a cynic, a little bit of, would you even believe it, virtual, virtue signalling by the government. Mm. Um, that uh, We've sent some, well, it's very odd, This the whole story's very odd. It's like they've sent some guidance, but it's all like, you know, it's all sources and, um, you know, downish uh, DFE insiders are across about things because they can't actually on the record, named ministers pinpoint things that are actually that cross of it. And I don't think... You could ask the question, Winston Churchill, hero, war, war criminal. You wouldn't want it being taught as fact, Winston Churchill, war criminal, because the whole point of history is you discuss these things. But pr- provocative questions seems all right to me. Yeah, provocative questions are good. I mean, I, I, I'm, I find the culture war very, very tiresome, but I think... Calling out the mistreatment of black people is not necessary. I mean, of course, it's, as James says, everything is political. But, you know, calling out the, mis- the mistreatment of black people is, is not political per se. That's, it's not like there's any shortage of evidence. I mean, what I find really odd about all of this is the idea that the place that we've reached in now, when various sort of sacred tenets are being re-examined from different angles, I think that I think we ought to be pleased about that. I think that ought to be a source of pride you know it's really hard it's really uncomfortable to confront history and the past and your national past and I think it's quite enlightened to attempt to kind of find a way through all the difficulties so I think we should be giving ourselves stickers and instead what you get is people huffing and puffing and object objecting and shouting that people are liars and feeling that history belongs to them personally and is somehow being desecrated but history is just history. These are things that happened. You know, it's all a question of interpretation. But people respond as if you'd said something mean about their pets. You know, it's fine and it's civilised <laughs> to view ev- some events in the past with shame or with regret. And it's fine, I think, in the classroom context to talk about that. And also, I think cancel culture comes from... Actually, I think it comes from being a bit sick, but I'd better not say that. I think it comes from a... A, a, a failure of being taught how to think properly and you're taught how to think properly by being presented with all sorts of possible scenarios and all sorts of possible interpretations. I think the wider ranging the interpretations that are presented, the better for the minds of children. And I think, I mean, generally, James, my view on most things is that I don't know. Yeah. You know, quite often yeah. if a new thing blows up, I can't work out what I think about it for a while. Yeah, absolutely. People with these, what I find so weird about this political, you know, the 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 government, certain facts, not all of them either. I thought James Heaper, the Armed Forces Minister, was on times when he was asked about this this morning, and he he sort of said, "Oh, I've not really thought about." You know, he was yeah, he yeah, was yeah. thinking out loud. But the people who have very strong view, you know, the 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 yeah yeah, the Dean Doris is complaining about dumbing down Panto and all that business, um, <laughs> uh, as she once tweeted. 
they're, they're sort they're as much you know they're as bad as the people they think they're complaining about. Yeah, absolutely. I think people more... who have who, people who think they know exactly what they think yeah. on all subjects at all times. More power to people who haven't made up their minds and feel slightly confused. I think we need a greater we need a the confused and unsure need a greater national voice, um, and <laughs> especially um, especially especially in, especially in, especially in schools. You know, schools should be about what happens when you don't know. And also, I don't know. I mean, but yeah, I just think all these kind of rules in schools, it just potentially makes things a bit sort of bland and sometimes exciting, you know, exciting eccentric teachers with weird views, although they may not perfectly adhere to every guideline, can be some of the most interesting, exciting people to be taught by. But one of the things that they objected to in here was there was a school where they, a school, primary school in Nottingham, uh, got pupils to write to their MP to call for Boris Johnson to resign. The letters were composed during during school. The head teacher said pupils had watched BBC Newsman and then did an exercise to write to the MP with their views. So, I mean, part of me thinks, blimey, that's quite a good... Do, children watching news round and then thinking about politics and then writing a letter that's to the MP. That's good, isn't it? We should be encouraging that's that. Good thing. The fact yeah. they all came to the conclusion that the man who uh, broke his own rules in number 10 uh, might not be fit to be in number 10. <laughs> you know, maybe the issue, maybe the issue was the fact that the Prime Minister was on the news uh, having broken his own rules rather than MP, uh, encouraging children to write to the MP. Anyway, let's not keep on down. Anyway, the sun's come out now, um, India, so we can, let's focus on the positive. Um, uh, well, I'm just waiting. We had a tree fall down overnight, and I'm just waiting for next storm. It's quite blustery here. <sighs> I haven't even got my bell to ring to cheer everyone up. Well, everything, everything's rubbish. Everything <laughs> is rubbish. There we are. That's the big takeaway for today. Lovely to speak to you as ever. India night. Uh, you can read India in the Sunday Times. James Marriott. Um, it's not written a column today because he's a lazy bones. But um, will you be daring to do one next week? Yes. Yes, I will be. A nice cheery upbeat one. Definitely. Yes. Well, don't prom- don't over promise. No, maybe. Maybe. Anyway, you, as and when James uh, deigns to, to to give us his thoughts, you'll be able to read them in the Times. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to the Times.co.uk. Sign up now and get your first month for free. India Night and James Marriott, then in horse, you can read them at the Times and the Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, who would want to be an MP? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. So let's kick off then with some of those who are standing down. Uh, Dame Margaret Hodge and Harriet Harman. 
long-standing Labour MPs, Labour ministers, Howie Arman, of course, former deputy leader of the Labour Party. They've both announced they're going to stand down at the next election. They spoke to Aisha Hazarika recently on Times Radio about why they'd taken that decision. I feel that things are set forward for the future. I mean, when I first came in in 1982, Parliament was completely unrepresentative. It was 97% men. Women's voices were simply not heard. And our quest was to actually get women into the corridors of power so they could share decision-making with men in order to deliver for women in this country who wanted not just to be told what to do by men, but to have a say. And, and in a way, we have got to that point when women are now a critical mass in Parliament and very strong in the Labour Party. So I kind of feel it is safe to go. I always, always describe politics as a sort of drug. And although there are a lot of bad times, but when you get the good times, they're, they're good highs. I mean, I've tried in various times in my life to move on to other things and always been drawn back to politics. And I agree with Harriet. It's just such a difference. I came in long after her, although we, we worked together and we were friends. There was a group of us women who used to meet monthly with with Harriet to provide her with sort of moral support and to think through what was the next phase and stage of of, 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 of the progress that we sought and those, those monthly evening uh, meals that we had together are memorable they did they st stick in, in the house of commons in the dining room with them playing a harp in the corner and all <laughs> the other tables being occupied by men and then looking out of the side of their eyes at us as to what we were there and whether or not we were a menace to them, which, of course, we were. <laughs> That's Harriet Harman and Margaret Hodge uh, discussing uh, why they're stepping down. Well, Labour MP Ben Bradshaw's another one. Uh, he's the MP for Exeter. We're going to be in Exeter uh, tomorrow, of course. Um, so we'll hear more from Ben then. Uh, but I asked him why he's taken the decision to stand down after 25 years as the Labour MP for Exeter. Yeah, I mean it's the it's the it's it's the greatest privilege I think that anyone can have uh, in a democracy is to serve as an elected representative. I mean, whatever you think of the flaws in our system and the current troubles we're going through, um, I mean, I you know it's a it's a it's a massive thrill to me when I'm in, since I announced I was standing down. You know, the number of people who've contacted me or who've just come up to me in the street and wanted to talk to me, or they've got an anecdote, or they rem to reminisce about something and. Um, you know, it's it is a it is a, an honourable profession when it's done properly and well, and uh, you know the, the source of huge satisfaction uh, uh, when you know, particularly if you have the chance of serving in government and you know really making changes that make a big difference to people's lives. So I would strongly encourage people uh, to think about it, and um, but you know go in with our eyes open because uh, you know it's not it's not for everyone, and it has its downsides as well as its upsides. <laughs> Uh, that was Ben Bradshaw uh, speaking to me. And you can hear more of, uh, of that interview uh, tomorrow uh, on the show when we're live in Exeter. Well, this whole conversation about who would want to be an MP was sparked by a conversation that I had with the Conservative MP, Charles Walker, a, couple of, uh, a week or so ago, where he announced he was standing down and said he wouldn't tell his children to go into politics. Well, I called up with him again yesterday to find out more. I don't think I'd advise them to become an MP. I mean, obviously, if they were interested in becoming a member of parliament, I'd explain to them um, what it entailed, uh, what they would gain from it, but also the sacrifices that they'd make. The same in any job. 
Um, but I don't think I'd actively go around recruiting people to do it. But of course, if people uh, were interested and wanted to ask me what it was like, and uh, I would obviously um, be there to offer advice. If you were a young Charles Walker now, would you become an MP, given what you now know about what it involves? And if, if not, why not? I mean, I think, I, I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it uh, for the first uh, few years. And I've actually, I've enjoyed the whole, I've enjoyed most of my time as a Member of Parliament. But certainly, I think things changed with expenses in 2009 with the expenses scandal. Um, and didn't really get back on track after that. I think that sort of soured, soured relations somewhat. Um, and then, of course, there were there were issues around Brexit, and then we, we there was the economic crash, and then we've had obviously COVID nineteen. Uh, so there's been there's been quite a lot of challenges, and 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 that's been exciting at times, and obviously upsetting at times but i do think the expenses scandal certainly changed the atmosphere in in parliament do you think it's also changed what the public expect from their mp rather than it being someone who actually goes off and goes through legislation and scrutinizes what the mm. government's doing this idea of becoming an mp of an mp becoming a sort of glorified social social worker uh, dealing with every possible problem why aren't you working 24 hours a day seven days a week sorting out everything so I think that's really interesting because uh, social workers do a fan fantastic job and I've, I've been lucky enough to meet many social workers over my 17 years and I'm in awe at what they deal with. Um, but undoubtedly members of parliament now are seen as sort of super local ombudsman um, and nothing is too small to bring to their attention. So I have to be honest, what I won't miss is... Uh, uh, writing to various local authorities and bodies trying to get people off parking tickets. I think I'd now probably say as I'm leaving, if you don't want to get a parking ticket, don't park on a double yellow line. <laughs> it really has. It is now bordering on, on, the, on the ridiculous. Um, I think many of the things that have drawn to MPs' attention. Um, and I think actually if our constituents knew what bluntly we were wasting our time with, um, they would be fairly horrified as well. And uh, I do think that that's that's a major issue, and it's something that it's something that needs to be addressed because our budgets for staffing go up and up and up, and most of those staff, I'm afraid, are not spent um, pouring through legislation trying to improve legislation, and it's something we've got, we've got to try and address. Now I know a lot of my colleagues will balk at that, and they'll say there's nothing more. Um, than they enjoy than dealing with potholes, but it really isn't what we should be doing. How do you think you do that? How do you get that genie back in the bottle now that everyone's first thought when the drains are blocked or there's a pothole or they've got a parking ticket, they think, well, I'll write to my MP. How do you, yeah. how do you reverse that, do you think? I mean, I don't know. That's, 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 that's a real challenge, isn't it? Because I'm obviously so wet that I've, I've not done it. I mean, I think I'll start to push back slightly now now, I'm not, not seeking re-election. I think most people who are members of Parliament and most of their staff are, are actually pretty kind and decent people. And it's much easier just to say, oh, God, I'll do it, um, than actually say, no, this, this really isn't for me. You need to get in touch with your county councillor or actually you need to resolve this problem yourself. Now, I, I don't want for a minute to suggest there are not some really significant issues that come across my desk. There are. Um, and it is a pleasure to and an honour to help some of the amazing people I've helped and worked with over the previous 17 years. 
but but it is the case that more and more of a members of parliament's time um, is is taken up with stuff that actually they really have no business getting involved in. Just finally, in terms of the the increased, like you said, the social media, so there's more increased scrutiny of MPs. There's also more abuse uh, and, and threats towards MPs, or, or maybe the, it, it feels like that because we're also more yeah. connected. And obviously, the last you know, in recent years, we've lost two MPs, David Amos and Joe Cox, uh, died in the course of, of their work as an MP. What impact does that have on on MPs trying to go about doing their jobs? Uh, and did it play any part in your decision to to step down? So, so obviously, um, all members of Parliament feel the loss of a colleague uh, bitterly and and deeply. Um, I mean, I don't really do social media, so I, I just took that decision that really it didn't aid or advance my ability to do my job whatsoever. I mean, being a member of parliament is very serious business and social media 99.9% isn't serious at all. So, so I think members of parliament, if they could, should wean themselves off various forms of media. I, I know they'd find that difficult, but I've talked to a lot of colleagues who bitterly regret having gone on Twitter, for example, and I know a few uh, that have decided to come off it and are much happier as a result. But look, it, it, it's, it's, there's many rewarding aspects of being a member of parliament. It's a great honour and a privilege, but one shouldn't do a job forever. And as I said, I think to you a few weeks ago, the reason I chose to leave was that I just didn't love it anymore. And I think when you stop loving a job, you have to be honest to yourself um, and you have to be honest with the people um, who elect you. It wouldn't be fair for me to get re-elected in Broxbourne, that is a safe Conservative seat, um, just to pick up the paycheck. That would be an entirely dishonest thing to do. That was Charles Walker, the Conservative MP uh, for Broxbourne. He's been an MP there for, since 2005. He's just announced he's standing down. Really interesting question as to what the job of an MP is. Uh, and the number of times he's been asked to get someone off a parking ticket. I don't think that's necessarily what he, he signed up for. So let's speak to someone who has recently become an MP now. Uh, Faye Jones is a Conservative MP for Brecon and Madnesshire, uh, won her seat back in 2019 and joins me now. Hi, Faye. Hi, good morning. What made you, first of all, want to become an MP? Uh, well, I think, you know, I was always very um, interested in politics and it was something I thought about. Um, I, I grew up with an MP in the household. My dad was a member of parliament. He lost his seat when I was quite young, only about 11. So I didn't think about it for a long time. But a, a few years ago, I just started to get more and more interested. And I thought, well, you, you really can't shout at the television forever. You know, you have to uh, go and do something about it if, you, if you're getting frustrated. Um, so I, yeah, it was the sort of the summer uh, before the 2019 general election when parliament was was paralyzed and nothing was really happening and, and that drove me to it as well because I you know there were there were some changes that I really wanted to see happen and we just weren't talking about any of that because we were so dominated by Brexit and I thought well as I say, you can't moan forever. So um, go and get involved. And, and I, uh, I didn't, you know, I have to be honest, in, in, in sort of September, October 2019, I thought, well, I don't know if this is going to be, you know, my time. Am I going to am I going to get selected? Um, even if I am selected, would it be for a winnable seat? And what happens at the general election? Um, but it, it all paid off. Um, so it, it worked out quite, quite well for me. Uh, I wasn't expecting it to, but it did work out quite well. <laughs> and um, just that experience of your your dad being an MP, Gwilym Jones MP until nineteen ninety seven Conservative MP. Yeah. 
Um, did that mean that you went into it with a, albeit, like I said, you were quite young when he lost the seat, but um, did you go into it with a slightly better understanding of what the job involved, do you think? Yes, I think so. I mean, you know, my dad was a, a fantastic member of Parliament. He was all about his local community. He was a real sort of grassroots MP. Uh, I mean, he did become a minister, but that wasn't his his ambition. Um, and, you know, I grew up in a household where we spent a lot of time going to community events. I mean, I am a pro at selling raffle tickets because of <laughs> uh, the way I was raised. And, you know, we but I, I didn't know that as politics. I knew that as community. And that was the way that my my dad and my mum raised me but I have to say you know it wasn't my eyes that were opened it was my dad's in 2019 when dad came to help me in the general election I think he really saw how things had changed because of course back in 1983 when he was first standing he had my mum there you know with a shirt ironed and a meal on the table and uh, you know he was watching me having to come in from a day of canvassing uh, to go and do all of my emails and respond to everything on social media and I think my dad really saw oh okay my 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 wife really kind of kept us all going and and so it is very much a team effort so I think it was my dad who really saw uh, a difference weirdly I think he learned from me in a way I suppose that's the thing and so how talk to me about the the, the good bits and the bad bits um, what's the what's been the good bit what's 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 been better than you expected from becoming an MP Oh, there are so many uh, good bits. Um, you know, I, I absolutely love uh, being able to go um, around my constituency and, and meet people. And it's, you know, it's wonderful. You've almost got a, an open door because people just want you to come and learn about what they do. And that's absolutely fascinating. And I'm so nosy and keen to meet people that um, it, it's a wonderful part of the job. And then when you actually manage to deliver something that is, you know, that feels like a real achievement. Uh, you know, we've we've overturned the decision to close the barracks here in Brecon and and that was a that was you know that was a, a huge part of of the town so that is is phenomenal every time I go past that now I think you know that's staying because of the work I did and I'm I'm absolutely thrilled with that you know we've we've almost got things like cyber flashing over the line I've got some a huge amount of investment for a project um in a part of the constituency that has been forgotten about for a long time so you know there are huge there are great bits to the job it, it, it's it's a wonderful job I suppose perhaps a more interesting question. What's been worse than you expected or that you weren't necessarily uh, thinking was going to be part of the job? Charles Walker was sort of saying, you know, he spends far too much time dealing with things that actually aren't really necessarily an MP's job, trying to get people off parking tickets and potholes and that sort of thing. Anything, any, any downside to the job that you don't particularly love? Well, you know, going back to my dad, when he was first elected, he used to get letters and people would obviously have to pay to put a stamp on that letter. So it was a very important issue if you were going to fork out for a stamp. Now, when people can just email you and, you know, often off the back of these um, automatic campaigns, you know, that three clicks and that generates an email to your MP. You know, we do have a huge amount of correspondence and not all of it is um, that sort of pertinent or pressing, if I can put it that way. I think the bit that, that does frustrate me is is the, the political uh, time wasters, where you have a lot of people who just write to you because they really don't like the Conservative Party and they never will like the Conservative Party. <laughs> you know, I, my, the, the chairman of the local Liberal Democrats loves to write to me uh, <laughs> and uh, expects a reply every time, which is not the best use of my time, if I'm honest. Um, it's but, funny. You know, I think... 
that is that's the problem I think with the job is that you know you do as as Charlie was saying there are a huge amount of uh, of issues that maybe are not um, what you need to do. There's a lot of confusion about what your county councillor can do. Here in Wales, of course, we have uh, the Senedd, which deals with a huge amount of issues as well. So you know there is a lot of confusion. There's a lot of issues, and I think trying to prioritise that is that's the toughest part of the job. Faye, it's really good to speak to you. Thanks so much for coming on. Faye Jones is a Conservative MP for Brecon and Radnorshire, won a seat back in 2019, following uh, in her father's uh, footsteps. Right, let's finally speak to two people who are among the one in five who'd like to be an MP. Edward Lucas is a Times uh, columnist and writer. He's also been selected for uh, the Liberal Democrats for Cities of London and Westminster. Morning, Edward. Morning. Uh, we've also got Harriet Hadfield, who's currently applying for selection as a Conservative candidate. He's working with the group uh, Fifty Fifty Parliament, which is trying to get more women into uh, into politics. Hi, Harriet. Good morning. Thanks for inviting me on. Um, Edward, anything you've heard so far this morning that might might give you second thoughts, put you off the idea of becoming an MP? Not at all. Actually, while I was listening to you, um, your guests, I've been knocking on the door, uh, the doorbells here in central London, uh, just listening to what is on voters' minds. It's incredibly rewarding. Uh, I feel sort of rebuilding trust in the political system one, one doorstep at a time. And also having a you know, team of activists who come out and give up their weekdays or weekends to do it. So I think it is it is a difficult job and you've got to prioritise. You can't do everything. And I think some MPs come in thinking they're going to kind of boil the ocean and um, be the best um, constituent representative and the best thinker on policy and the best this and the best that. And in the end, there's only a limited amount of time in the day. So you've got to focus. And I'm focusing very hard on the idea that dirty money is a problem in our political system and you can see that very clearly here in 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 central london so that's my sort of big thing but i also worry about local things like noise and mess and safety and so on it's interesting actually on the in the poll 27 percent of lib dem voters would like to be an mp but um uh, only half of them uh, only 14 percent would actually want to be prime minister there's uh, all the parts particularly doing that sort of local thing is quite important Harriet, uh, why would, why do you want to become an MP, and um, how important is it for you the fifty fifty Parliament campaign? Yeah, so two questions there. I think the, the answer to the first question is that I was asked to stand, and that's actually part of the fifty fifty campaign. So uh, hashtag ask her to stand is is something to try and encourage more women uh, to get into politics and I was approached uh, a year ago uh, by someone saying I think you'd be good at this so I've, I've been on this um this journey now for a year but um you were, were talking before to Harriet Harman who's of course my alliterative namesake um and I was really inspired hearing her say our quest then was to get more women into the corridors of power and looking at your stats Matt um it's actually pretty encouraging that 15 percent of women would like to be an mp but then why do you think it is that 26 percent of men and only 15 percent of women want to be an mp on the question of being prime minister 20 percent of men want to be prime minister only seven percent of women what what's what do you think are the barriers there yeah, well, not to concentrate on the barriers, but actually look at the solutions. And I do think it goes back to that idea of ask her to stand. I think women don't necessarily think of it as a job that is for women. And perhaps that's because they see uh, more men doing it. 
But when someone suggests to you, look, you may have all of the skills, all of the appropriate experience to really bring something to this role. I think that's when women start to sort of sit up and say, oh, maybe I could do it. But look, it's not easy. It's not easy juggling uh, a family. You know, just this week I've had my little one off uh, off sick. I'm also pregnant. So for women, there's, a, there's probably a lot more to juggle at that exact time in your life when you should be being, you know, asked to stand to think about going into Parliament. Blimey, that is a lot you've got on your plate there, Harriet. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, what about you, uh, Edward? I, I was, I mean, without giving too much away, you're not a teenager. Um, uh, <laughs> um, do you feel like this is the right time for you to become an MP? Do you yes, having, do, I, having having sort of you've got you feel like you've got the time and the and the horrible word, but bandwidth to do to do what the job might involve? Yes, I think I'm mean, the kids are grown up or at university and I've had fantastic jobs in journalism and think tanks and things like that. I was at The Economist. I still get to have a column in The Times. And I got really frustrated sitting on the sidelines telling politicians what to do. And I thought I should at least try putting my ideas in front of the voters and seeing how I get on. And it wasn't completely new for me because I worked for Paddy Ashdown back in the early 80s. And it's a bit like taking up squash in your late 50s when you last played as a teenager. The ball teams have got, see, balls got a lot smaller, moves a lot faster. And everyone, everything's happening on computers rather than clipboards and carbon paper. But the, the muscle memory is still there. And I just love yeah, this sort of doorstep campaigning. And whether it's one-on-one or small groups or even um, big, big groups, you feel that you're restoring people's faith in democracy um, just by being there and listening and taking them seriously. And that's all we've got time for on the podcast this week. You can obviously read all about what we've been discussing online at thetimes.co.uk. Just sign up, get yourself a subscription at thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox. And if you want to come on and play our quiz, can you get to number 10? Just email studio at times.radio and throughout February, I'll give you a pair of tickets to my stand-up tour if you come on. That's studio at times.radio. But for now, thank you for listening. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.